Welcome to the New Books Network. In the midst of the fraught 2016 Brexit campaign, one of the most senior British politicians arguing that the UK should leave the European Union said, I think the people in this country have had enough of experts, and he was widely derided for saying that. But his remark caused controversy in part, perhaps, because it did strike a chord and reflect something about modern politics and populism and fake news. Well, Amanda Goodall is something of an antidote to that. She's written Credible, The Power of Expert Leaders. Welcome to you. Thank you. Hi, Owen. And now then, uh, you deal with not just politics, uh, but businesses as well. And you've been basically trying to work out what expert leaders can achieve and how they do it. Yes, so tell us a bit about that. How, how did you start researching that issue? Well, I started it coming in through real life, if you like. Um, I was working with a number of leaders in universities, and I realised that one of the people I was working with, who was uh, these are, these were head of universities, so these were all presidents of universities, and one of them was making different decisions, making different choices to the other person, and there was there was three actually, one in Chicago, one at Warwick, and one at LSE, Anthony Giddens, who's now in the House of Lords. And it made me ask the question when I was working with them, who should lead research universities? Should they essentially be good scholars or good managers? And that's kind of what started it off. So it was really a, a real-life observation um, based on my experience of working with leaders. Yeah, because it, it's, it's true of a lot of areas, isn't it, that professional managers have... Uh, taken over. I mean, it's true in medicine where I mean, my father's a doctor and I remember that he used to be one of the men who ran the hospital. You know, they ran it. Uh, but then managers came in who just did management. Exactly. In fact, doctors always used to manage uh, hospitals and the best hospitals in the world are still more likely to be led by doctors than general managers. And that's kind of one of my findings as well. Right. So let's get into the sort of broad themes of what your your, your, your conclusions are, because we'll talk about various case studies you've, you've got, which are all really fascinating. But ju- just on uh, the general approach that you came out with or the conclusions you reached, what, what did you think? Well, I, I, what happened was um, after I'd done the university studies and I'd found that um, top scholars are more likely to lead research universities in the world, but also in longitudinal data, I found that they were more likely to go on. So the universities were more likely to improve under top scholars. I then felt that I needed to try and replicate this finding. That book was published in 2009 by Princeton University Press. And I felt that I needed to try and replicate in as many settings as I could. Um, Owen, you've, you've done a lot of these podcasts and you're probably aware of how much material there is around leadership. And I found that there was actually very little generalizable information. In other words, if you stop someone randomly on the street and you ask them, what do you know to be true about leaders? It's probably quite likely that they they wouldn't say necessarily the same thing. In other words, despite all the hundreds of thousands of papers and books, actually very little knowledge is known. In fact, they might even say something like, well, we know we don't need narcissistic idiots at the head of our institutions. And then I'd have to say, well, that didn't work out very well then. So I wanted to try and do studies that could look at leadership um, in different settings and see if I could identify a a pattern that was one that I really believed in, number one, 
um, that was empirically supported, but across lots of different kinds of institutions. So to try and move us away from anecdote. And that uh, took me then into looking at lots of different settings, looking at sports settings. I looked at basketball, Formula One racing. Also in hospitals, I've done many studies now looking at um, uh, doctors in hospitals, but also uh, a study looking at every single kind of business in the whole of the country of Denmark. And we found the same thing. So now I feel that's why I wanted to publish Credible at this time. Not only did I feel there was a real need to try and get experts back in the top jobs, but also um, I felt confident that um, what I'm saying in the book, I can actually support empirically. There's a beautiful tweet behind you. Ah. Well, that's fine. It's very nice to listen to. What is it? I think we just sort of should explain what it is. <laughs> yes, it's a bird. Um, it's because I've got the doors open because it's quite warm in London, and it's a bird in the background. It's a London bird. <laughs> Marvellous. It's uh, a London bird. <laughs> okay. And, and let's uh, just ask you then, you say you, you sort of looked at all these other areas, and are you saying that really your conclusions that you'd reached with universities were replicated? Yes, they were replicated um, in in universities in a sort of cross-section one point in time, which looked at uh, the top 100 universities in the world. And then I showed that in longitudinal data and they were the finding is replicated. We basically need and I should explain in other organizations, the key um, the key point, I suppose, is someone who has worked in an industry uh, or an organization for a long time. So a core business expert. And what we want is we want, if we think about medicine and, and your father, what we want is someone who wasn't just a doctor, not just an academic, who basically, who, who, who studied medicine, say, and then decided, well, wasn't, medicine's not very good for me. I keep killing patients. I know I'll become a leader in a hospital. <laughs> we don't want that kind of person. And, and you laugh, but in my world, actually, in universities, a lot of people who who don't, who aren't very interested in research or teaching or whatever, think, okay, I'll raise my pay and status and I'll go into administration instead. And that's a very common path. And I think that's very common in lots of professions, except for where quality is carefully controlled. Because we want someone who is a who is a really good expert, who's an exemplar. We want a line manager who we can look to to help us develop our career, who will who can assess what we do and tell us if you know how we can improve what we do etc so we want we do want an exemplar and if we think about the world of politics of course um, there's been a lot of controversy around about politicians recently but we really do expect our politicians to to be exemplars to to be the standard bearers for the quality of, that we should expect in our politics and i think that's true across all all organizations yeah it's, it's interesting what you say about people making that decision to go into management and it's true in well certainly in bbc journalism anyway and and i guess many other organizations that yeah the real hardcore journalists don't particularly want to be managers and no. and, and as a result they end up you know not getting paid as much and quite grumpy whereas you know often the not the best journalists do want to become managers and end up being better paid and quite happy yes i mean I, one doesn't want to be rude but if you think about if if I'm someone who is sort of averagely good in my trade profession, you know, whatever it happens to be, um, I'll, I'm going to think, well, my status and my pay and my, my position isn't going to advance very high because or far because I kind of recognize that I'm not as good as others. So that that's why often people rationally make that move sideways. Now, yeah, I think that's very much the wrong thing to do. People have often been allowed to go into leadership 
um, when they put their hand up and said, oh, yes, I'll go and do the leadership training course. And so people have kind of self-selected into those roles often. One of the things that's really fascinating is that when I teach a a course in leadership management for doctors, and and I started it, in fact, at my business school. um, And when you when they start the first module, it's all about behavior. The first module is all about behavior. And maybe we can go on and talk about that later. But um, the first thing I do when they enter the class is I, I show them the evidence because a lot of these doctors come in and I think some doctors in the NHS have been almost emasculated, actually, um, which is quite a strong thing to say. But they, I see so many of them coming in from the NHS and they, they, they just feel like frauds. They shouldn't be there. And some of these people are very experienced with very many years uh, behind them in terms of practicing medicine within an organization. And so I show them the research and I show them that you're the right people in the right place. This is a safe space for you to be able to show your strengths, weaknesses, etc. But this is why you should be here. Here's the empirical evidence. And it's quite interesting because you can see them kind of, they sort of, it's like they get taller instantly and they, and they also relax. You can see they think, right, so I should be here. I am, you know, it is right for me to be doing a leadership and management course. I'm not a, a fraud, etc. And that's quite fascinating. And I think one of the big issues, and particularly, well, for example, in the in the media, in the BBC, one of our best institutions, um, we if we explain to our colleagues that we need people the best to go into leadership management, and if our organisations incentivize those people properly, in other words, if they pay them properly, if they recognise that they're putting down their tools as something they love to take on another leadership management role, you have to compensate them and you have to create the kind of jobs that they want to go in. And that, I feel, has been a big problem in many institutions. So when just listening to you talk about what an expert is, you seem to be suggesting it's both the academic qualifications at the beginning, but also those years of experience in the job. Yes, absolutely. And I, and when I say expert, I'm not talking about this in a sort of um, status way or, or necessarily. Um, this could be someone who, for example, um, I've got a great quote from um, my mobile phone provider, EE, and it's from a woman who was sorting out my problems. And she just happened to say off the cuff because we ended up getting talking and she just came out with, yeah, one thing I've, you know, that's really helped me is that I've got a manager who really understands my job. This is, this is people all the way through in different kinds of organizations. This isn't just doctors and lawyers. They're easy what people to pull out and talk about. But this is, this is everyone. This is, you know, in the, in the study in Denmark, this is right across all organizations, everyone in their job, whether they are a janitor, you know, whoever they are, wants someone who understands what they do, because otherwise they can't really do their job. This is a slightly tangential uh, issue, but I think it relates to what you're talking about. Uh, I've observed that when interview panels sit to uh, decide who to promote, I've, I've often thought it must be really hard to do that because, <laughs> frankly, they quite often get it wrong. But they sometimes get it right. But, you know, there seems to be a fairly random distribution between good promotion decisions and bad promotion decisions. And I've often wondered why that is, because obviously everyone sitting on that interview panel wants to make the right decision. And, and But quite often don't. And it's quite often pretty obvious to people, you know, working as the expert, the doctor, the journalist or whatever, that they've made a mistake, but they... they, they somehow make the mistake have, have you looked into that so often people might want you know they might think they want to employ the best person but sometimes 
they don't actually. Sometimes they, sometimes they think if we employ someone who's really, really good, they're going to make me look not very good. So I think that's a very common uh, problem on panels. Very often people use this thing called homophily. And homophily is like for like selection. We're much more likely to select someone who is in our own image in some way, communicates like us. There's loads of evidence showing this. And that's why diversity is often quite hard because people instinctively go towards people who are like themselves. So I think the, the hiring panel, as you say, is such an important place. It's the place where we you know, we select people who are going to have jobs and probably be in those jobs for many, many years. So I think putting the right people on hiring panels is essential and particularly having the right kind of, you know, the best, you want enough people on the panel who represent the very best in whatever the industry or trade is. Now, you might want someone there who represents, you know, a, a diverse population also, but you need to have the best experts in that field on that panel so that, often the very best, they'll be able to spot others who are the very best. And if they're very good themselves, they're not threatened by hiring someone who is better than themselves. And that's actually a really hard thing for everyone to do. Now, then this applies, I mean, what you're describing, I guess many more hiring panels will be promoting people in the middle of management because there are many more of them. But when it comes to CEOs, and you've got these enormous salary packages being offered to people running, let's say, you know, the leading companies, private sector companies. Uh, there's so much money at stake. You'd have thought they would uh, be putting an awful lot of work into trying to understand how to make the best appointment. I, I mean, I guess some of them may be consulting you now, are they? I don't know. But it, do you think those people in the city, in industry, do put enough thought into how they select a, a business leader? Yeah, well, I think this is a really interesting topic, and I think it's um, and also one that relates to the BBC, um, but m- most organisations. I think one of the problems that I have seen so often is that the board, the board of an organisation who's doing the selecting, um, on that, on that, on the board, there are very few people who really understand the business. Now, obviously, some organisations are very good at that. If you take, for example, the massive consulting firms, if you take the big four, if you look at Deloitte, for example, um, as one of the major consulting firms, you'll find that they have virtually no external input into any of their major decisions around hiring or anything. I'm not even sure they've got a board, actually. Everything is done internally by them, which I think is fascinating because they have many thousands of documents on their website talking about good governance, and yet actually none of them have really any governance from outsiders. They're all insiders. They're all, you know, they're all selected and they've all, they've all worked their way up. They make all their selections from inside. They only put people from the inside into the top jobs, which is fascinating given that they give lots of other organisations advice. So I think boards, in hosp- hospital boards, for example, have got a lot of people on them who are the kind of great and good, the sort of uh, local dignitaries or whatever. And, you know, if you look at those hospital boards and see how many fantastic physicians, how many fantastic nurses from maybe from outside, not from inside, but from outside or on those boards, you'll find that there's virtually none. There's barely ever even one external doctor uh, on those on those boards. It's very, very unusual. And I think this is a big problem. If you think about in commercial organisations now, the, the average salary to to compare with the CEO is one to is is around 300 times 
the average salary of the CEO is. So as you say, CEO jobs are massively important. And, and fairness, people feeling fairness is also important. So I think being represented on those boards, but particularly by people who understand the business of, of what they're hiring into. Imagine, you know, someone trying to pick a journalist. Imagine the panel or a board. I mean, if they knew nothing about journalism or what it was required, how are they ever going to pick the right person? I mean, it's just it's just not going to happen. And and frankly, I think it often doesn't happen. So you, do you think that, I mean, it was very striking, just on Deloitte's, first of all, I mean, that they they do this all internally and you're, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, actually, because, I mean, they're very successful companies. You know, they make loads of money, don't they? They all make loads of, loads of money, absolutely. I'm actually, I'm a... I'm not a fan at all of the likes of McKinsey's, I'm afraid, or a lot of the, the these big consulting firms. I, I'm not. I've seen many of them going into hospitals and, and the amount of money in the NHS that's been wasted on management consulting is quite extraordinary. But and, and governments are using them more and more, which is which is really alarming. In COVID, the amount of money globally that went to these firms during COVID was extraordinarily high and I have the numbers in the books for both America for India for Europe for Britain and but so the irony here with with what I'm saying is that on the one hand we can say that Deloitte's I think is the fifth most successful company private company in the United States currently they they call themselves partners but they're not it's a private company and so they are very successful and they practice expert leadership if you look at the CEOs of all the major consulting firms and again you know, I can I can list them all um, from a piece of paper and they have all spent their entire career in those firms. In other words, there's no way. And I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Owen, but there's no way that if they that if you fancied becoming a CEO in one of those firms, you'd ever be allowed in at all. And yet the, the total irony here is that they do not preach what they themselves practice. They will quite happily go into another organization and tell them how they should be run even though it would never yeah, happen right. to them. Exactly. So they, I think there's an extraordinary irony here. Yes, their whole business model is is uh, counter to what they do. Exactly. Completely and, and, counter. And Deloitte would never hire a, 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 you know, McKinsey's to, to look at their affairs. No, it's very unlikely. I think maybe occasionally, I think KPMG once hired someone from another consulting firm. But no, I mean, absolutely not as far as I know. No, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in consulting firms, but it doesn't take much research to look this through, actually. So you've talked a bit about... Uh, you know, organisations in Britain that are basically public sector and, and saying that they, they don't have very well thought through appointment committees. Uh, what about the contrast with the private sector? I mean, is it is it your observation, let's say, that the big banks, the big accounting firms, the big lawyers uh, in London, uh, you know, many of whom make quite, uh, you know, companies that make a lot of money, uh, do they do this better than the public sector? Do they tend to have more experts on the the, the appointment committees? I would say yes. If we just looked at the law firms, um, many, I don't know how many years ago now, 10 years, 12 years ago, there was a major London law firm um, that had the, the very problem that you identified. None of their senior lawyers wanted to become a manager. So they thought, well, let's just try and bring in an external who was a, a, a non-lawyer and it, and it went completely wrong very, very quickly because they realised that they had to be led by one of their own, effectively. So I think they are much more like, they're much more likely to do that. Now, having said that, there are a lot of issues that, that they face also. They um, The world has become much more bureaucratised and, and I would say managerialism hasn't just 
negatively affected the public sector. I think it's kind of hit everywhere. And that, and that means it's even harder to pull a kind of core business expert away from what they do, what they love, to go into a leadership or management role. So again, it goes back to the whole idea of try and reduce down the bureaucracy, but also incentivize and make the job palatable so that the right people will go into it. But I would say that on average, many of these firms, and not always, I mean, in my book, it's full of corporate companies that 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 failed, corporate organizations that failed because they took CEOs who went from one organization to the next. In fact, I think 2021 figure is that over 50, just over 50% of CEOs came from outside of their organization. So I think the private sector is better but I don't think it's as bad. And I would go as far to say that I think our lack of productivity, you know, the very famous productivity paradox that's talked about a lot in the UK. I would go as far to say that the UK um, is particularly bad at this. And I would suggest that the productivity part of that gap is because of our our non-use of experts, especially if we compared us to, say, somewhere like Germany, which I know has got its bureaucratic issues too, but it's far more expert-led, I would say, than Britain. And just look at the politicians. I mean, if you look at the board, you know, if you look, I remember once looking at, um, I can't remember what it was, it was a department of, it was then called the Department of Climate Change and something else, and I remember looking, and it, I was astounded to see that even among civil servants, there were so few people with scientific degrees. And most of the cabinet tends to have either humanities degrees or, you know, a PPE, but um, a lot of them don't have science degrees. So, and yet the world is probably going to end because of climate, the climate disaster, which is a scientific phenomenon. So, yes. Let let me just uh, ask you to run through some examples. And I, I, from your book, uh, I've got five. I don't think we've got time for five. So I'm going to ask you for your top two. Okay, your favourite two out of uh, HBOS, Apple. Uh, let's do. I'll give you four. HBOS, Apple, Boeing, Boeing, and Formula One. What, what are your favourite two? I suppose they all say something different, but um, HBOS and Boeing. Okay. Are, HBOS, Boeing, and Apple are all are all times when certainly Boeing is a time. Do you want me just to talk so, about, tell us about those, Boeing? Or? Yeah, tell us about Boeing. So, so Boeing is very interesting, and Boeing is part of the kind of all the the the, the examples that I used about um, IT projects and things where things go wrong and when experts aren't listened to. Boeing had had fifty planes grounded during their Dreamliner um, uh, failures, and that was. Uh, the expert engineers had warned them about this on many occasions and then and they were ignored and what was interesting about that was um very many i think it was something like 60 percent of the build was outsourced to different companies which meant for the engineers it was a disaster to control and you'd kind of hoped that they might have learnt from this because it cost them quite a lot of money they were hoping to they were hoping to save money on dreamliner it was a technologically advanced airplane it ended up going way over budget and again well they didn't listen to the engineers and then with the with the Boeing Max crashes two Max Max crashes where unfortunately everyone died again what preceded those crashes was that the engineers had not been listened to um, and that happened on many occasions and again outsourcing continued there was actually a newspaper headline showing nine dollar engineers outsourced um 
um, who were doing the work on 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 parts of the engine, and so they were they were outsourcing and they were they were downgrading the quality of engineers working on the plane, and that has cost them uh, I can't remember the but it's something like two hundred million. It's a huge amount of money. It's in the book. Um, and it's a massive amount of money. And that was because they didn't listen to the experts. And that was also partly a change in culture. McDonnell Douglas took over and they had a very different culture than Boeing had previous to them to the takeover. And I think there's many examples in the book of when you don't listen to experts and how things can go badly wrong. The, the Andrew Hornby HBOS one is slightly different. That's, that's the sort of generalist manager problem. Yes, that's right. So Andy Hornby won, I know um, particularly well, because I've followed that one for a long time. He, uh, he, he did very well in his career very early. He worked for a cement company. He worked for Asda. And then he uh, went into Halifax um, and he took uh, an operational, and I think it was a COO position. Halifax and being a sort of a mortgage company. In sorry, yeah. Halifax being a bank and mortgage company, exactly. And Halifax merged with Bank of Scotland and um, it became one of the largest banks in Europe. And he moved from Halifax to become eventually the CEO at age 39 of HBOS, which was the new Halifax Bank of Scotland merged bank. And he, it was prior to the financial crisis, he he became overconfident, I would say. He took many risks, as we all know, happened during the financial crisis. And unfortunately, Halifax and Lloyd's had to be rescued by the taxpayer at huge cost. And we are still suffering from that today. In fact, I worked out back of an envelope that the amount of money that the British population, the working population had to pay out for the banking crisis was approximately £40,000 per head and the amount, the average uh, salary at the time that this all happened was £20,000. So the amount of money was huge. Now, Andy Hornby was then pulled up with three other major bankers associated with HBOS in front of the um, Treasury Select Committee. I think it was a Treasury Select Committee. I haven't got it in front of me. A committee of the British Parliament, yeah. The com- yes, a committee of the British Parliament um, to... And this, this happens a lot uh, in Britain when things go wrong. And the four bankers were lined up and um, Anger, Mr. Anger, who was a, a politician from Wales, asked Andy Hornby and then asked, in fact, all of the, the bankers the same question. Do you have any banking qualifications? And the answer from all of them was no. Andy Hornby had no banking qualifications, the the former CEO, nor the chair of the bank. None of them had any banking qualifications. But Andy Hornby defended himself by saying that he had an MBA from Harvard and he did all the finance modules on this MBA. And that, to me, is the example of exactly what's gone wrong, that we've used MBAs as a kind of credentialism that has become more important than experience or expertise. And I work in a business school. I teach MBA students, and I think they are incredibly good degrees. But you cannot trade an MBA degree for experience and and, um, expertise. And it was funny because in the book, I also recount a story. I bumped into a friend in the London School of Economics um, around the time that this was all happening, so 2009, say, 2010, 
And I, I was mentioning, talking to him about this, and this colleague, you know, who's a, who's a very clever person, who's uh, an accounting professor, said, oh, I know, Andy, he's a really clever chap. So I said to him, well, in that case, you won't mind if he operates on your knee next time you have a football <laughs> accident. And that, and that, that's the point, really. It's this, this idea that because he's a clever chap, he can just suddenly whiz into an operating theatre and te- grab the scalpel of someone. Or, you know, and why would we put someone like that at the top of one of our largest banks in Europe? Why would we risk the British economy in the hands of a 39-year-old with no banking qualifications? And, you know, maybe if he'd even spent more than five minutes in the banking sector, we might have felt a bit more confident. But that's the kind of thing that I think is very common in Britain um, and somewhat common in the United States also, but more common in Britain. And I think, I think that says a lot about why our productivity is much lower than other countries. He's he's not here to defend himself. Uh, how did it how did it go for him after after HBOS? Did he get another big job? Oh yes, yes. he was literally he uh, he left HBOS and he became he went into a CEO job within months within months to Boots Alliance Boots or Boots Alliance whatever it was called then and and he he's never looked back. I mean his salary has never really dropped in all of this time. That's another thing. You know, in many countries in Europe, people were actually put into prison who had bankrupted things through mismanagement, which is exactly what happened. No, in this country, it's fine. You just you don't even you know, you you barely get reprimanded. You can go straight into another job um, where with and earn a big salary. And I think this is quite tragic because the many thousands of people, I don't know, was it 50,000 people were lost their jobs during the banking crisis? I mean, you know, what, what message does this send really? Tell us about uh, one more then, one more example. Uh, Formula One. What what did you uh, discover about Formula One? So we tried to, Formula One was uh, one of the other studies where at the time I was looking around trying to find data. Where can I try and replicate this finding? Where can I get good data? Sports data are brilliant because um, as with many organizations, possibly made worse because people want to try and uh, manipulate how success is is measured in sports it's quite easy isn't it either spurs either makes it into the championship or it doesn't i mean you know you can assess these things quite well you either you either uh, do well in formula one championships or not and so i like sports so i can measure the outcomes and also there's always these wonderful individuals who love sports data so they collect so much detailed data we were able to collect uh, data from 1950 into it was nearly nearly 60 years of data on Formula One racing. So we could see we could assess who was the team principal, as they're called in Formula One. We could assess um, the, the positions of each team, the championships, all that kind of stuff. And we could also look at money invested, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Formula One's quite interesting because the rules change quite a lot every year. They change the rules, so. Um, I know sometimes certain people like Hamilton dominate in terms of winning, but then a rule changes and then they they kind of get pushed back again. So it's quite an interesting sport to look at. And we found that um, the the most successful principals in Formula One racing were more likely to have started their career as drivers. And and they, they also had long driving careers. Now, not necessarily just in Formula One, but they had long driving careers throughout their whole career and the second funnily enough those who who were second actually um, but quite a further uh, a long way down were the mechanics and we realized it's the people 
who were closest to the track. And I usually, in my presentations, I, I have a picture of Lewis Hamilton go-karting, and he was about six or seven. It's an amazing shot. Driving around a track at an age, you know, uh, six or seven, where most of us, at speeds that most of us have never driven in, in, in our entire lives. And I think that's, that's what it's all about. It's about being close to that core business thing where you really start to understand, you know, in his, in, in his sort of experience, the, the weight of the car, the balance, the, you know, everything. He must know so much about cars and car and the, and the engine and, 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 you know, the whole industry. And it makes sense to me then. And similarly with football and other sports, but that's how we discovered that. So it was a lot of data and we could control for a lot of things because you want to, you want as much as possible to make sure you're looking, you're comparing like with like. So you have to control for things like the amount of money put in, et cetera. Formula One, again, is quite interesting because it, it has a ceiling on money. Now, it doesn't mean that those that some people haven't got more money in the game than others they have. But we can control for all of those kinds of things and really look at the influence of the of the leader. What, what about uh, family run businesses, particularly, you know, these ones that go for generations where, you know, you do, you, you, you do get the sense that the, the, there is you know, a hundred years of knowledge behind uh, a man or a woman running, still running a family company, uh, which is expertise cubed, right? So so do, do you find, did you look at that and how did they compare to these, these you know, corporate organisations? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. These days, um, in most Western com- countries, there are family-run businesses still, they tend to be smaller um, but in countries in Japan, for example, some of the oldest, it's got some of the oldest companies ever. It's got one hotel that's been running for a thousand years. And um, they they do, a lot of that is family run. But even then, there was a Chinese professor who said that actually one of the main reasons they succeed is that they are always focused on this core thing. They don't you know, end up soaking up lots of different kinds of businesses and bringing them in. They tend to just focus. There has been a lot of research done on family businesses, and I'm not an expert in this area. But we do know that um, if people, if family businesses are just putting someone in because they are the, you know, the, the person who is related to the, the business, then that doesn't necessarily always work. What you what you need to do, the research suggests, is have family go into leadership positions, but also have that as an open competition, because that way you know that you're getting the best person, whether it's a family person or not. But I would say that that one of the main things about these businesses is that some of them don't deviate too far. At least this is the case um, that's suggested in Japan. Um, and if you think about that, and many family businesses we know, like if you think about your typical ice cream shop or your cafe or something like that, um, then you know often they they are they are focused on their core business and there's there's a cafe a famous cafe that that I used to go to and I wonder whether you did also Owen called Patisserie Valerie that was in in uh, Soho and it was such a lovely cafe we loved it we always used to meet there everyone loved that cafe and I don't know I don't know what happened exactly but someone bought Patisserie Valerie and kind of turned it into this chain and. Um, I don't even know whether they exist anymore. I've got a feeling it didn't last long. And that is because, and that happens to so many times you see this, you see businesses, restaurants um, that become chains that are bought out by 
financiers or, or groups of um, finance people and they try and kind of continue to run them and they often fail. They lose the edge. They lose what they had that was so special. That's not that's slightly deviating from the family business, but I think in a way it's also very relevant to the family business. Yes, no, I've got a good case study for you. I've just been reading about the Madeira wine trade oh. and, and there is a family there, that's why I was interested actually, because the family has been doing it for yeah for hundreds of years, uh, and yeah. well anyway over over a hundred, and they did exactly what you said actually. I was quite surprised because when you looked at the succession they'd had from generation to generation, it wasn't necessarily the son that took over. It could have been like yeah quite a distant nephew who's hoiked out from London to go to Madeira and do it. Uh, so there was exactly what you're saying. A fa- it was a family continuity but with quite a wide pool each time there was a, a leadership change. Very interesting. Yeah, so so that's exactly what you're saying, really, isn't it? Yeah, good. <laughs> it proves it's true. Uh, so now then, as we um, look ahead, can I ask you whether what you're advocating is you know, happening or actually is it going the other way and these corporations are increasingly appointing yeah, managers rather than experts? Yeah, it's a really good question. And another part of that whole question is thinking in terms of the broader world, thinking about politics, thinking about what happened with with Liz Truss and her lack of expertise and the effect that that's had on the economy, unbelievably huge, um, and thinking about climate change as well. So I think on the one hand, I hope that the book will be received well and it might sort of chime with the need, the recognition that we need to listen to experts, whether it's in industry, whether it's in government, whether it's um, around climate, the climate crisis. I I hope, I would really like that to happen. Um, But I'm also quite realistic about the fact that generalists outnumber experts in some ways um, and and a lot of experts unfortunately and this is why I think this book is a tries to be a call to arms to core business experts wherever you are you know whether you're a designer what whatever you do um, that that we need to motivate um, the, the best experts into these line manager and then um, CEO positions. But there are a lot of generalists around and it's not necessarily within their interest for this to happen. Management consulting firms make huge amounts of money if we shifted power towards the experts in organisations. And we said to the consulting firms, we, you know, we're not sure that you're doing the right thing. They have a lot to lose. And um, so I, I wish, I hope, I really hope that experts are given the voice back because they used to, right? That This is what used to happen. The apocryphal post boy used to be able to work their way up in the, you know, the American corporation to the top seat. There's no way that would happen anymore. I mean, the, the chance of that happening must be so incredibly rare. And that's because I think of, of this move towards generalists. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know. Honestly, Owen, I don't know. Let, if we can have another conversation in a year, I'm, I might be able to give you an answer. Are we going to get politicians who who will listen more to um, to experts? I don't know. Well, it's been a very interesting conversation, and thank you very much for yeah giving us the benefit of all the the thinking and research you've you've done into this issue. Thank you.